You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love More Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Good morning, good morning, good morning. You are listening to the Winning Book Radio Show off the shelf. What a wonderful morning it is here. Woke up to snow, and I'm telling you, it is rare to have it snow in the south. But what a wonderful, wonderful sight. But I want to drop this with you before we introduce you to this phenomenal guest. And this is a quote from Benjamin Franklin, well done is better than well said. Isn't that true? Well done is better than well said. Something to to chew on and think about as you go through this marvelous, marvelous day. And I want to welcome you again to our Saturday, February the 8th, Off the Shelf Books Talk radio show. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. We have an insightful and talented author on deck for you this morning. But before I introduce you to our awesome guest, I want to ask you, and I ask you guys this, Every Saturday morning, how good of a mystery sleuth are you? Are, are you really good? Are you really, really good? If you read a mystery book or watch a mystery television show or movie, can you figure out who did what? Then, you know, there's that big who did it, but there are little small little secrets given along the way. Do you, are you Are you on point? Do you figure all those out if you enjoy doing that? I really encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. There is a mystery tucked in this story, which is also a book about a soulmate relationship and a relationship between a father and a son, and it's complicated because the father has untreated alcoholism. And these four friends, these four friends, how good of a friend if one of them is actually involved in the murder, would a friend use another friend to help cover up for something they did? Oh, I'm telling you, if this is what you like when you read a story, stop what you're doing and go get a copy of Love Poetry. You can get it at Barnes & Noble, Amazon. You can get it at Google Books. You can get it in ebook or in print book. If you want to get it at the bookstore and you don't see it, just ask the clerk to order your copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney, and they can order you a special copy because Love Pour Over Me is carried by the largest book distributors in the world. Please go get a copy. Treat yourself. Treat yourself to a copy of Love Pour Over Me and let me know how you enjoyed the book. And now, drum roll, drum roll, let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And our special off-the-shelf guest this morning is Linda Plunkett. And I'm going to pause and tell you, we have people who join the show, midstream, through the show. There is still time, before I introduce to you and tell you more about Linda when we launch the show, there's still time for you to tell your friends, your neighbors, people you know who love books. There's so much that our guests share with us on the show. There's still time for you to say, hey, to catch off the shelf, tune in, catch it in the chat room or dial in. Listener dial in is 347-994-3490. Again, that's 347-994-3490. 
So, Ms. Linda Plunkett, Linda has a doctorate in Christian psychology. She operates Hope for the Hurting. She's also the author of the book, which we're going to talk about today, Supernatural Rescue from Broken to Beautiful. Don't you love that title? And in the book, Linda shares her story of coming out on the other side of brain surgery. She she had a brain tumor the size of a tennis ball. Wow. And although Linda still doesn't have a sense of smell, she continues to advance. She's a ballroom dancer, you all, for which she has won an award. And she is working on her second book, which we'll be discussing this morning as well. And what a remarkable woman. Just amazing, amazing, remarkable. And I encourage you to visit Linda online at lindasplunkett.com. And that's L I N D A S. P-L-U-N-K-E-T-T. Again, L-I-N-D-A. S as in super, P-L-U-N-K-E-T-T.com. Linda S. Plunkett.com. We are honored, honored to have Linda join us this morning. Let me go connect her to the show. Welcome. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Linda. Thank you, Rhonda, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Oh, you're very welcome. And it's Denise. It's Denise turning and no problem. But want to welcome you oh, to I'm Off the Shelf. Oh, Denise. No, absolutely okay. fine. It, absolutely fine. It's a pleasure to have you here with us on Off the Shelf this morning. The, the first few questions I'm going to ask you, Linda, and you have such an amazing, amazing story. The first few questions I'm going to ask you, I ask every guest who comes on Off the Shelf, because our listeners like to get a little backstory on our guests. So to kick it off, could you please tell off-the-shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Okay, uh, where I grew up um, was the Midwest, actually um, close to the Amish country in Ohio, northeastern Ohio, and much different than where I live in Florida currently, but um, it was more of a rural, small-town area. Um, Things moved a lot faster, much slower back then. My family had a family business, and I actually worked in a family business from the age of nine. We were all expected to work. What type of business did you guys, did your family run? Well, um, it's an interesting story about my father because he did not have a lot of education. He grew up in West Virginia, and after serving in World War II in the Army, he hitchhiked to Ohio, and he started a small produce business, which the produce business eventually turned into several grocery stores. So by wow. the time I was, yeah, by the time I started to work, he hadn't expanded. He still had a produce market, but he eventually added canned goods and a meat department and really built it up from scratch. So my father was really to be commended. Um, you know, back in that time, it was a different time, and people didn't have the opportunities for education that they have now. Wow. So I want to ask you, and this is a little bit of a side story and amazing about your father. I think that is fabulous. There's a little bit of a of a, just a turn question that I'm going to get back to talking about more about you and how you developed as a writer. But who's responsible for your passion for playing golf? Well, that would have to be my mother. And um, like I was telling you about my my. My dad, my mom, although she did have a high school diploma, she was very motivated into having her own business. And so my father developed the grocery side of the business 
And my mother's dream was to have a golf course, and eventually she built a golf course. But um, I really learned golf and really um, enjoyed golf because of my mother. You you have a your, your parents are go getters, and what a what a history. And then uh, talking about your recovery, which we're going to get to, uh, it just a- absolutely astounding. And even listening to you talk, how you came back when you were a kid, what did you dream of becoming? Well, you know, I had many dreams as a child, but they were not the kind of dreams that I really could could really see happening because you have to realize we were poor. You know, we were poor for a long time, mom and dad really getting started. They put everything they had into the business and and you know, my dreams were were kind of simple childlike dreams like if I could have been an ice skater, I would have loved to have been an ice skater. I would have loved to play the piano, but we just didn't have money for things like that. And so Honestly, my dreams did not, you know, they were not the kind of dreams of one day I want to be a writer, one day I want to be a psychologist. I, you know, I was kind of contained to my small town environment and my parents not having a lot financially at the time I grew up. And so I guess I was just like a normal kid. But, you know, had I had dreams at that point, I would have loved to have ice skating lessons, maybe learn to play the piano. Uh, Those were the type of dreams I had as a small child. Now, when we start talking, I'm going to start asking you how, you know, the, the when you first realized you had the tumor and and just the miracle recovery you had. But this, I'm thinking, helped you during your recovery. Did you work at, as a psychotherapist? I know at your website it shared that you had a busy counseling practice. I can only imagine that that may have been helpful, if so, during your recovery. Well, you would think that it would be. I mean, I had been a counselor for, I guess, at that point. I mean, I started out um, doing lay counseling, then went back to school, probably 15 to 20 years. But um, the thing that happened after my brain tumor was, you know, I had a gigantic tennis ball-sized tumor. They had to cut my head all the way around. There were complications. The surgery went on for almost eight hours, and I had a lot of anesthesia in my body. So, um, honestly, when I first woke up, I I felt like a vegetable. People say, well, what do you mean? What does it feel like to be a vegetable? I could not put thoughts together. I had trouble speaking. I couldn't walk. It took me months to learn how to walk. Um, I would like to say all that helped, but in the beginning, it really didn't. It didn't help me because I had so much of a problem with the very simple things that I needed to get well. And, you know, a few months after that, I went to a major medical clinic because my brain, I felt like, okay, I'm getting a little better. I'm learning how to walk, but my brain was still messed up. I couldn't go back to work. There were so many things I felt like I couldn't do. And I asked them, you know, because of my psychological background, can't you run some tests, run, you know, run all the tests you can find and tell me what I can do to get well, you know, what to really, um, to help my brain. And so they did all this testing. They came back to me and they said, there's nothing we can do for you. Which was devastating. And, you know, in the first month after um, the brain surgery, I feel like I cried every day because I didn't know how to get well. And then several months later being told, you know, we can't, excuse me, we can't help you. But, you know, the truth at that time was I thought I can't live like this. You know, I just can't. I cannot live in the condition that I am. I have to find a way to get better. And that's when I started reading books by brain doctors and to get more information from other people how to get well. You know, you are the second those person that I needed to. You're the second I'm person sorry? we've had. No, we're, you're the second person we've had on the show 
who was in a bad situation from a medical, physical perspective. We had a lady on here. She was a talent agent, uh, youth talent agent in Hollywood and New York, and she said she just started getting weak, 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 and she couldn't understand it. And going from doctor to specialist to doctor, and she and her husband both thought she wasn't going to make it. So she did research on her own and found out this was way before the gluten stuff came out that she was uh, gluten, I mean, intolerant, and she went on a crusade. But if she hadn't done her own research, if she hadn't done she said she was just getting sicker from doctor to doctor, and she just took it into her own hands and did her own research like you did. And you have to, yeah. You have to do that because, I mean, if I had listened to this major medical clinic, I would have said, well, I might as well just give up, you know. But I knew that I could not stay in that spot. I had done too much to help people. I wanted to help people again. I wanted to be healthy. And it was a long process. But, um, you know, I would encourage listeners um, not to disregard what your doctor says, but to realize there's a multiple number of opinions out there, and it's important. Um, It's important to seek a multiple number of opinions and not give up um, when the first person says to you, I can't help you. Even if they're a quote unquote expert. Now, to, to oh, go these back. Are experts, for, yes, yes. To go back for uh, our listeners, um, I wanted to ask you had you been experiencing headaches or memory or vision issues before you sought medical help? What made you decide to go get tested? How did you discover that well, you even had a brain tumor? You know, it's really funny you should ask me that because I was running my practice, and honestly, my husband didn't notice anything. I didn't notice anything that wasn't having, even though I had this gigantic tumor in my head, wasn't experiencing any headaches, um, no unusual physical changes in my health. But one day I went to lunch with uh, my son and a close friend, and coming back from lunch, they were looking at each other, and they came home, and they, they said to my husband, there is something wrong. My son says, there's something wrong with mom, and my friend said, there's something wrong. I was behaving in a, a strange way. I was not responding as I normally would, and it, you know, it was very clear to them, although my husband said, oh, she's fine. There's nothing wrong with her. I mean, sometimes husbands are the last ones to know, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, I honestly, had they not said something to my husband, who knows? Who knows what, what might have happened? And, and and so your son was the one who, you know, so had you did you see your son regularly? I'm curious why he would notice something was different and your husband didn't notice. No, no, this is interesting. Both this particular friend and my son, um, my son's, we've lived away from each other and, um, at that point, you know, he didn't live a long distance, maybe an hour, an hour and a half, but I didn't see him, you know, like every week. And my friend was actually someone who I only saw periodically because she was actually a missionary to Guatemala. And so she saw me maybe, you know, three or four times a year. So, you know, that's, you know, maybe that had something to do with it as well. I didn't see them every day. Wow, what a blessing. Can you share with us what your relationship with the creator was like before you receive the brain tumor diagnosis. These type of events can literally shift your perception. Well, I'll tell you, I did have a crisis with God, and this is after, you know, being a believer in God since the age of, you know, 
between 9 and 12, I really strengthened my relationship with God to a point that I felt I was close to him. But when you are going through a lot of pain and suffering, you ask questions. And the first question I said, basically I said in front of my husband, is, what did I do? I feel like I'm being punished. I feel, you know, what did I do? Because I had, I had served in this nonprofit helping people. Many of um, the people, like on a pro bono or reduced rate program, I had done mission trips. I'd done three or four mission trips. I volunteered for nonprofits and other organizations, and I felt, you know, I had tried to be obedient to do what I felt God was telling me to do, and now I had this terrible illness, and I wasn't getting well. And so, honestly, I I developed almost like an anger. And, you know, I really changed my perception about relationship with God because maybe way back then when I was counseling people, I might have said something like, oh, you shouldn't be angry, you know, blah, blah, blah. But honestly, Deep down inside, God knew my heart. He knew what I was going through. He knew my frustration. And so as I became, like, really real with God in, you know, expressing to him at one point, God, you know, I'm suffering, I'm in pain, I can't help anybody, and why am you know, why am I alive? Why don't you just, why did you not let me die during the brain surgery? I mean, I actually said that to God. But, you know, I really saw some of the hugest miracles in my life because I was real and honest, and God knew my heart anyway. So I would encourage people, regardless of what your opinion is, how you think your relationship should be with God, just be real. He understands. He knows our innermost parts, and he understands us in a greater way than what we could ever imagine. How long did it take you? I can only imagine if somebody told me, today that I had a brain tumor the size of a tennis ball and I didn't even think anything was wrong with me. Oh my god, I don't I, I, I don't know how long it would take me to even just process that. How long was it did it take you to find the right surgeon uh before well, you were you know, comfortable enough? Everything had to be on a quick schedule and the reason for that people say, "Well, did you have cancer?" Thankfully, I didn't have cancer. Having said that, my strange behavior, according to the doctors, was that I was having seizures in my brain that was causing me to act out in abnormal ways or say abnormal things. And basically, a seizure can kill you as quick or quicker than cancer. And so I found out in October, and by December, early December, I had to have the surgery. So um, that was a real experience, so talking to surgeons, and not every brain surgeon has done a lot of brain surgery. I would add that. <laughs> um, and also there was a chance that I was not going to make it. When you have a gigantic tumor in your head, a lot of times they will watch it and they will not do anything. But because of the seizures, I had to have the surgery. It was not an option, and I had to have it very soon. So as I began to interview doctors, um, they all painted kind of different pictures. But one thing I knew was that maybe I would not come out of it alive. Wow. That is something to have to face. Oh, my goodness. To have to, to, it's a have shock. to face. Yeah, it's a shock. How did you get through those those uh, those hard I'm, – I'm talking before the surgery – how much time after you found out you had a, a tumor and it, that big, large of a tumor and that you went into surgery, how much time was there? I know you said you had to go quickly because of the seizures, but how much time Not, was that before you Really only, I would say, a little bit over a month because we had to interview doctors, you know, brain surgeons. And you just, oh, my goodness, you get a variety of strange, strange um 
strange opinions from different doctors, and I'm not a medical doctor. I have a PhD in psychology, but some of those, the things that they told me, I just could not even imagine that I would want even them to try to do that type of a surgery that they were talking to to me about. So we interviewed, um, I would say, three, four different doctors, um, and then once you have picked your doctor, they have to reserve a time. You have to have an ER or an ER available. You have to have um, you have to reserve a you know room for surgery and everything that goes with having a brain surgery. And so basically, that really could not be um, you know could not be done until early December. So that was the earliest they put me on steroids. I gained a lot of weight. Um, I had a craving for salt and sugar and put on a lot of weight before and after the surgery because of the number uh, amount of steroids that they had to put me on around that time. Mm. Were you conscious? You you spoke a little earlier about uh, when you came out of the surgery. Were you you conscious? How long did it take you to gain consciousness uh, when you came out of the surgery? What was it like when you first woke, woke up? Well, like I mentioned a moment ago, I really just felt like it's just hard to explain what it feels like to feel like you don't have a brain, but I had trouble forming thoughts. I had trouble speaking. Well, initially, this is what my husband said. They put me on some kind of a drug to make sure I came out of it quickly and that I did recover. And I don't remember the name of this drug, but he said I was talking really, really fast and not making any sense. But once I became conscious, I I was like, where am I? I, you know, I don't know how to handle this. It was, it was across the board. I didn't know how to handle it emotionally. I didn't know how to handle it physically. I had trouble speaking, thinking I couldn't walk. My balance, I had no balance. And basically, I was just crying. I was crying a lot. The first 30 days, I just remember crying almost every day. It's like I remember I had a home health care person come to my home shortly after. And I remember putting my face in my hands. Fortunately, I did a journal during this time where I might not remember everything, but I put my face in my hands and I just bawled and I said, I don't know how to do this. And that's when he said, you need to write things down. You need to have a journal. And otherwise, you're not going to be able to tell you're getting better to really measure your own improvement. And so that's when I started writing. Even though I will tell you the first time I wrote, I couldn't read my own handwriting. You know, I was I wanted to ask you for any listeners, because I I know two people who, like you said, the brain tumor that do have a brain tumor, but the doctors, like you said, they're like if it's not giving any problems, we're we're not going to do any surgery, just leave it and we'll watch it. Right. But right. for anybody going going through that, because you could have one and not even know you have one. Oh, well, the doctors I'm sure. say we're, we're sure going to we're going to leave do. it in. We, it's too much risk uh-huh. to, to do surgery, so we'll watch it. And leave it in, and I know two people with one. But what 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 advice could you give somebody if they're dealing with that, particularly if it comes to a point where they they are told we have to go in and do surgery? You said journaling was one thing that you did that helped you. What are some other things that you did to help yourself just keep moving through that process? Well, obviously praying. You know, trying to talk to God and believing that. You know, if he still had a purpose for my life, I felt like I'd helped a lot of people if he still had purpose, that I would still be alive and that somehow I would recover. And, you know, you just, um, 
it's just a very strange feeling. And then, you know, of course, after the surgery, I had the near-death experience where I did feel that I was dying, and I felt like I had a supernatural rescue from God. But, you know, it's it's a very, um, how should I put it, you're walking in unknown territory. You know, you don't know what to expect. And honestly, the hardest thing for me through all the brain surgery and also going through the fibromyalgia that followed is I never knew anybody who went through anything like that. And I had, you know, dilemma across the board, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and I couldn't really find a book. And that was part of the reason I wrote the book that I did because I had no one who could really relate to what I went through. And I think maybe I went through some unusual things that other people don't go through. The reason I mentioned this is I was part of a cancer um, benefit this fall and I got to be a sponsor for this big um, Discover Your Beauty um, cancer benefit in Orlando and I was interviewed on a radio show with some of the cancer survivors and uh, several of them said to me we never went through anything like you went through but you know I do believe there's a purpose in what you go through and I think what I've been through can help somebody else and I really believe that even though maybe the depth of what I went through was worse than what other people have gone through. So I was going to ask you what inspired you to share your story, and this happens on the show so many times. Right before I'm getting ready to ask the next question, the the, the guests will launch right into it. I was going to ask you what inspired you to share and write Supernatural Rescue from Broken to Beautiful. How soon after you, your your recovery or your surgery did you actually think, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to share my story. I'm going to turn this into a book. How, how soon after? Well, uh... Fortunately, I like I said, I had the journal. Had I not had the journal, it would have been hard to retrace the steps because of the terrible condition of my brain. But you have to realize it was, for me, this was just really, really slow. And when I learned how to walk, it took several months to learn how to walk. And when my brain was messed up and I had to try to find books to try to help my own brain. And then I had a huge setback about eight months after the surgery. When I woke up, I had pain all over my body, and I couldn't sleep, and they called it fibromyalgia. The onset of the fibromyalgia, believe it or not, was much, much worse than recovering from the initial brain surgery. And so because of the fact that I went through several years of trying to find a way to deal with fibromyalgia and not having sleep and pain and, I mean, the horrible things that went with that, the book did not actually come out until 2016. I wrote it, you know, probably started really working on it 2014, 2015, but I was really in not good condition for a few years to be able to do anything like that. And even the fact that God, you know, restored my counseling, pro, you know, pro, my, my practice for counseling and a lot of things were restored, the ability to dance again. Um, it took a long time to really, and I'd never written a book like I tell people, just because you have a PhD in psychology doesn't mean you know how to write a book. It's not an easy thing. So it did take me quite a while to, with the help of other people to be able to put that together. Can you share with our listeners some of the events that you actually cover or go over in Supernatural Rescue from Broken to Beautiful? For example, do you start do you start the book with your childhood and then uh, progress up into the, uh, the brain tumor and the recovery, or do you just start right away with the, uh, the brain tumor? Yes, pretty much. Um, like the, the, first, um, the first chapter is, is kind of an overview, a little bit about my past, how I grew up in the Amish country, and um, 
just having like a quiet time um, with God and just kind of an opening. But yeah, it goes right into chapter two, which is called a surreal revelation, how I was in shock. Like, you know, it's funny, you know, you're, you know, I was a psychologist and people say, oh, you can't be in denial. If I could have been in denial, I would have <laughs> to believe that I had a brain tumor. Like this isn't really happening, but it was, you know, and it was a crisis. It was the biggest crisis of my life. And it was very bizarre. I was 59, but I mean, I had great health. I had no high blood pressure, high cholesterol, any diabetes, nothing. And my father recently lived to be 100 years old, so we have good genes in our family. But, you know, this was just such a total, total shock. So, yeah, it's basically, it starts, it goes into the story. Um, it goes all the way through um, the point in the fibromyalgia where um, I started taking a medication, which, by the way, I will say that did not cure my fibromyalgia. So the, um, the final chapters in the book are things that I really learned from this experience and that I learned how, that made my life different or made me think different the last few chapters. And some of these are, are you know, really less from a psychological point of view, although some, there are some principles in there about things you could do to help yourself, but more um, things that were very personal that I really, really um, changed, you know, how I feel, but I realized what the most important things in life are really from having to go through this. But I do have a, a chapter on suffering, you know, what is what could be the purpose of suffering? You know, it seems useless, but honestly, you know, I would tell people, I, ha I have a great capacity to help people in ways I never could have because of the depths of suffering. And in, I'm writing another book in the future on improving your brain, how to improve your brain, how to get through fibromyalgia. Um, but also um, I'm starting a new coaching practice this year to help people online and over the phone. Um, I didn't want to maintain a constant counseling practice where I pay a rent. But at this point, you know, being able to do it online is great because I can really help people and still travel and um, do other things that I want to do. I can only imagine how much more uh, powerful and conviction as a counselor you would have and the clients you'd work with. When people know uh, somebody who they're speaking with has been through something, at least I can say for myself and other people I know, you it gives you it gives you credibility. And when you talk to somebody and you've been through something and they haven't been through much, it's like you don't understand. <laughs> so when when no, they've been through something so and they're helping you, you're like, oh, you get it, you you get it, you get it. Now you said you had a you had a near death experience. Was this was this during or after surgery? And did you receive any messages? What happened during that near near death experience? Okay, well, I um, I have a chapter in my book. It's called the Ten Dark Days because, um, like I mentioned before, I felt I felt like a vegetable. I just felt I couldn't think, I couldn't talk, I couldn't walk. I was falling all over the place. It was hard for me even to get from the sofa in the downstairs to the bathroom. Um, but the, the incredible thing about it, I just had this emptiness there. I even felt that God had left me. Honestly, I felt totally abandoned by God. And it was about 10 days that I'm just laying there and feeling complete hopelessness and laying on the couch. And and I can't explain this because there's no words to explain what started to happen, but I felt my spirit separate from my body. And like I was no longer in my body. And I was moving closer and closer to the front door spiritually. 
My body was still on the couch, but spiritually I was moving and I was on my way out. I was at the front door. I was ready to open the door or go through the door and leave. I'm not sure how that would have all happened, but I was at the front door and literally, uh, this is the only way I can explain it. And I realize some people I say this to and they'll say, oh, she had a brain surgery. It didn't happen, blah, blah, blah. But I saw a huge hand come out and pull me back into my body. And I realized God was with me again. And the reason I believe there's credibility to that story, my husband's sleeping in his normal bed upstairs. Like I said, I couldn't even go up the stairs. He said that in, when, when this happened, he saw the hand. And he's a very really? spiritual person. And he saw the hand, and so I actually have someone to back me up there. But once that hand, and it was just a hand. There was no body. There was nothing. Pulled me into my body. I knew that God was there with me again. But that's when my dilemma, you know, started kind of started with God, like God, why? You know, all the whys, all the questions come start coming out as to why it's happening. But um, yeah, that that was. There were several miracles, things I can't explain that happened in the first couple of years. I totally cannot explain. People either believe or they don't believe, and you know what? That's up to them. I can only tell people these things happened to me. And, you know, I'm here to say it's made me a different person because they have happened to me. Wow, what a story. Now, after, I definitely want to talk about this, and you mentioned this briefly uh, earlier in your interview. This was something when I was researching for your interview that kind of struck struck me. When I was in the Navy and I was in Indiana, there were I, I went through like an Amish community, and it's almost amazing that these types of communities exist in our fast-paced, rush, 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 rush world. There are people who don't go at the frenetic pace that a lot of us do. They live a more quiet, tranquil life in the, in the midst of all this turmoil. Now, at the start of the book, Supernatural Rescue from Broken to Beautiful, you share what it's like for you driving through Amish country. And you, you said you grew up near Amish country. Why do you think that entering, you, you like you enter this state of peace, you say, when you're in Amish country? How does it has it always had that effect on you from when you were a little girl? And why do you think it does have such a strong impact on you? Well, I do think, you know, our experience around us, what's around us is, is, is important. And I think these days it's really hard to be in a peaceful place, a lot because we're tied to the technology and the traffic and, you know, the hustle and bustle. But the Amish people live a very simple life, and um, I understand there, there's been changes in some of the Amish communities, but what we're in, when I grew up at that time, they still drove the horse and buggies. And, in fact, my father, who had the little business I was telling you about, they came, you know, a fair distance to purchase from him because he was closed on Sunday, and that was important to them. They didn't think that businesses should be open on Sunday. And they so the horse and buggies would come up the road, and they would – tie their horses out front and um, you know but you know to me I look at things now and I think you know what a freedom not to have to be tied to your technology and I mean there's good things about that I can I can communicate on Facebook with family members in West Virginia that I never see if I didn't have Facebook it would be harder you know some things are good but you know sometimes we just feel like we're tied to the phone there's the email and the Facebook and you know all the social media and the you know all those, all those different apps that we seem to need to be able to function, but to live in a simple place in a simple time where you don't need that. 
Um, remember when it was like to have a regular phone that you you you, know, you didn't carry a phone with you? You checked your answering machine, but when you were out, you you didn't have that sense of having to multitask and do so many things at one time. Because you got home and you check your messages, you call people back, but you weren't on the phone all day. You know the way a lot of us are now, and it's become all more of a necessity. So having a simple lifestyle where you know you don't have to have your car serviced. You know, you don't, you're not tied to a phone. And, you know, I always wondered how they got through the cold winters because it's very cold up in Ohio. But I guess they have like, they build, you know, fires, either coal fireplaces or they have wood fireplaces. Or, um, you know, I when I grew up, when I was a young child, I remember using an outhouse in West Virginia, which most people have never experienced. Wow. But my grandparents yeah. were poor. And that was a long time ago. But you know, when things were more simple and less complicated, or you can, this is my feeling now, if if and how you can build boundaries to have your life more simple and less complicated, you do yourself a favor, because the peace, that even that momentary peace, will enhance your life. And when I travel, we go to North Carolina some, and I can sit and look at the mountains. There's just something about the peace looking at the mountains, just sitting there, emptying your mind and, you know, maybe talking to God or just meditating. But the peace of having that quiet time that's uninterrupted, that we so seldom experience that right now. It's just so important uh, you know what? So to have that if you can. I'm listening to you talk, and I'm telling you, when you when you switch saying the regular phone, and I hear people, some people get so annoyed, they say when they're trying to sit, watch a TV show with uh, their spouse or somebody they're they're with, and the other person is texting, or you're at a restaurant with somebody and you're going out for a romantic meal, and they're, they're texting while they're talking to you. Like, would you put that phone down? But it's yeah, it, it, yeah. It is funny when you say regular phone. I heard I was at the mall recently, and a little girl asked her father. She's like, he's he, she's like, what's a record player or what's a <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, feel old. <laughs> These kids, the stuff that we grew up with, the kids today are like, what is that? They don't even know, never even heard of it. But it seems like, like people say, technology. You can't even go out to eat anymore. Everybody's texting. You have meetings. People That's are checking true. Stuff. <laughs> Everybody's well, like you said, you know, always multitasking. Well, and I look at these small children with phones, and I'm not so sure that the parents are really doing them a favor. Because honestly, you know, we used to go out and play, and we formed relationships, and we'd solve puzzles, and we'd play games, and we did things, you know, different. We had a different kind of a lifestyle as a child. And, and the kids, you know, I feel bad in a way. The kids are already feeling they have to be tied to a phone in, in a sense. And I understand people wanting to have the kids to have a phone for an emergency or whatever, but all that social media and all that information, I think, is sometimes not not really good for children. Mm. Now, what process did you follow when you were writing the book? You said you know you PhD psychology, but writing a book was was that particularly challenging? Did you go to any writers' conferences to learn how to well, put I together? Did. Yes, I did. Now, you have to remember, though, when you have a Ph.D., you do a lot of writing. So I did have a lot of experience writing, but then doing a book, it is a different thing. So, yeah, I actually found um, a publisher initially, and I'm in the process of trying to relaunch my own book on self-publishing, but I did find a publisher at a writer's conference. In fact, you know, in spite of what they say, oh, you can't get a publisher, I did have a publisher pursue me 
Um, and I did get a publisher at the Writers' Conference. I did learn a lot about writing and the different avenues of writing. So that was very helpful. And this past year, then I went to a different kind of writer's course because I want to be able to relaunch the book um, through self-publishing. But, yeah, there's a lot. Um, I struggle with the technical aspects, like doing things on the computer technically and uh, to the point I have to talk to a geek squad or, you know, try to try to get help to fix technical problems not having grown up, you know, with a lot of computer skills, unfortunately. And that's been my biggest challenge. Why would you switch from a regular? Now, I think I know the answer to this, but for our off-the-shelf listeners who may be thinking about publishing a book, and I think everybody has a story to tell. Everybody has experiences that could help other people or inspire or encourage people or maybe even shorten the path somebody takes to get from point A to point B when they share their story. But there's a there is a difference in many ways from going with a traditional publisher in today's book industry versus uh, independent publishing, which was self publishing used to be incredibly frowned upon. And I'm saying about like 15, 20 years ago, it was a big no no. Now it's more accepted. It was hard to get your books in bookstores, libraries as a self publisher. It was like you were almost looked down upon but it's different so but i wanted to ask you for our listeners why would you you have a tradition you have a publisher whether it's a a a midstream or a large uh publisher why would you switch from that to self-publishing well you know there's different there's different reasons for that um i'm in and i want to say right off the bat i'm i want to take nothing away from my publisher they were a good publisher they helped me through like areas that I would not have known how to navigate. Um, and I had already had my book um, proofread and edited. They edited it again. They did, you know, a second edit. Um, they definitely, you know, putting together the book, you know, putting, finding a cover, just things, like I said, I was somewhat technically challenged. I think people that are more technical, they're probably a better fit for self-publishing, but um when you have, when you do, when you self-publish, it does give you liberties with your book that basically, you know, certain things, your publisher has control of your book, basically. And also, um, most, most people, and I don't know, I don't know how to put this without it sounding negative, but most people, this is what I have heard and I believe to be true, most people never see a royalty check. I have seen a few very small royalty checks. But if you self-publish, then you have the control in your hands. I am thankful they gave me a number of copies of that book when I did the book deal because when I travel and I do speaking, I do speaking fairly frequently, I can carry those books and I can offer those books, you know, at my speaking uh, engagements. And I'm glad, you know, between now the time that I, I haven't yet self-published, I still have a lot of copies of the book. You can still get the book on Amazon. It was available at Barnes & Noble. I'm not sure, but... The book really wasn't selling, and they did not really teach me skills for, you know, trying to get on a bestsellers list or trying to, you know, things you could do with your book. And when I went to the self-publishers conference this year, they had a lot more ideas, you know, mm-hmm. of things that I could have used that information way back then, but I was counting on my publisher. He just mm-hmm. wanted to publish the book, but he didn't really help me with promoting the book. Or, you know, I've had so many positive comments, but, you know, never been a bestseller or anything like that. Um, So I really kind of wanted to give the book a second chance, maybe put a new cover on it, 
but also it gives me a chance to edit and make changes. And so I've had people look at it, read it, and say, well, I think it, this might be better, that might be better. So, you know, I'm considering that as I self-publish it in the near future. You have a you have an incredible story. I mean, I could see you sharing your story, whether you, you know, getting your books into hospitals, whether you're sharing your story to the people who have gone through what you've gone through, the fibromyalgia, the, uh, the the brain tumor, whether somebody has the surgery on or not, somebody who maybe had a love has a loved one who's dealing with that is inspirational. Churches, I mean, the self publishing and getting out there and really uh, sharing your story. You have an amazing, amazing story. So I wanted to ask you uh, before we start talking about hope for the hurting. Can you share with our uh, our listeners what have readers been saying about supernatural rescue from broken to beautiful? Well, I've gotten really good feedback. In fact, people people that aren't really avid readers, and, you know, I'm glad I have the speaking venue as well and now the coaching venue because a lot of people just don't read. But they might, you know, they might listen to something. They might listen to a radio interview or a podcast, or they might hear me speak. But um, people have said to me, I, I started reading your book, and I read it from start to finish. And the good thing is it's not a super lengthy book, so if you had the time, you could certainly do that. But um, people say it does encourage and it does inspire them. And people, many people relate to it on different levels. And it's because I went through such a trauma emotionally, spiritually, and physically that people can relate to something in the book. There's a lot of different levels of, you know, trial, tribulation, suffering that I went through that people can, they're able to relate. And that's, that's, I felt when I wrote the book, if it touched one person, if it helped one person, it would be worth it. And I'm, I'm glad to say that it has. It's helped more than uh, one person, even though it's not become a bestseller. It has helped people, and it's accomplished the purpose that I had hoped for. When and why did you just, just uh, shift in just a, just a little bit, still, still in the, the healing uh, space, but when and why did you launch Hope for the Healing? Hope for the Hurting? Hope for the Hurting was something I did a long time ago when I started counseling. You know, I received my Ph.D. Um, in the early part of, um, gosh, let me think when it was. It was um, around 2000. I may not be telling you the exact date, 2001, 2002. But when, when, I, um, when I received my Ph.D., and my background was from both liberal arts and from a spiritual college university that I went to for my PhD and master's. And um, I basically wanted to help people and to be able to give people a chance that might not have the money to get the counseling that they wanted, and but also for people to get a tax deduction. Now, I probably never really went out and asked for a lot of donations the way I should have, but I thought, you know, if people could donate and then I can help people and they can pay what they're able to pay, um, that could cover some of the costs. And also, um, I became ordained as a minister when I got my Ph.D. And so, you know, having the nonprofit, the 501c3 set up, I felt, you know, there was an avenue for other people who wanted to give, but also, um, you know, it, it would make it more affordable for more people. So tell us about what are some of the specific services that you offer through Hope for the Hurting? Well, Hope for the Hurting, you know, it's interesting. Um, I'm reestablishing my board because what happened 
you know, like I said, for a number of years, I couldn't do anything. And I was counseling on a very limited basis. You know, I hadn't come out with a book. I hadn't reopened the counseling practice. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to have a new board meeting this year. I'm going to um, reestablish the board. See, basically, it was meant for counseling. So I didn't really put the book under it or the speaking under it, but although the speaking I do is pretty much voluntary. People can offer me a gift if they want, but for the most part, I've not solicited, you know, a fee. That may change down the road. I have a, a large talk that's going to impact thousands of people, so I may get solicited for paid engagements. But having said all that, it was basically limited. Hope for the Hurting was limited to the counseling. And so um, someone recently said to me, well, your coaching is just counseling. You're just doing it online. You know, you're going to be offering modules people can download, but you're basically giving people advice just like when you were counseling. So I am going to um, reestablish the board for Hope for the Hurting. Everything's been kept up to date and legal. And um, that way, if people that are doing the coaching online want to give to the ministry or other people want to give to the ministry, they see what I'm doing, they like what I'm doing, they can do that and also receive a tax-deductible receipt. But what, when you say counseling, are you? Is there a certain area do you that you counsel in? Like there's there's so many different. You got your addiction counseling. You have counseling for uh, depression, anxiety. Are there any special areas that you you have your training in, your practice in that you that you focus on? Well, in the past, I did honestly more couples, more family. But for through the years, I've done a lot of individual counseling. Now, the coaching online is more focused toward a lot of common issues that people have, but it is more individually based. Now, having said that, um, I'm going to cover issues like depression, anxiety, fear, stress. A lot of people deal with negative mental outlooks, so I'm going to teach people how to be more positive. But also um, making changes in your own life, goal setting, um, but, you know, just really encouraging and inspiring people with their relationship. It's going to be a threefold relationship. This is this, or a threefold ministry. I'm sorry. This is a little different, and it's because of the pain and suffering and everything I've been through that I'm changing the focus a little bit. But it's going to be tools for your body, your soul, and your spirit. Because so many people have said to me, oh, I have fibromyalgia. What, what did you do? What did you do? I have issues with my brain. How did you help your brain improve? This involves making physical changes to your environment physically to, to be healthy. And so I'm going to include that. I'm going to include spiritual helps, but also the typical soul counseling. How do I change my thinking? How do I change my behavior? How do I have better relationships? How do I choose better people for my life and make better decisions for my future uh, and not give up, but to realize there's hope for change. Those are more the primary things that I am going to be focusing on. So it's a little bit different focus, but it has been because of the struggle that I've personally gone through that I feel I can help people in greater details in those areas. So when you, this counseling, I'm trying to envision it online, and I see more and more where doctors, whether it's a physical doctor or even a psychologist, they're just meet, they're either meeting with the, their clients now through, like, video. So you don't, if, you, if you, you, you may have your in-office session with your psychotherapist, but then if you're having, like, feel like a crisis, 
you can connect with them over your 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 cell phone or through a video video chat is that the is that the way your um your counseling is going to be set up so somebody connects with you I don't know via Zoom or uh, some type of a Skype a video chat or is this something where they you how how is that going to work is it texting okay. back and forth right I'm I'm I have a program that I'm actually I'm so excited because I'm I'm unveiling this program as we speak but the the program um, will not be in the office. Um, now, I'm sure some of the people that I've counseled in the past will contact me because I have so many requests. People say, Linda, can you help me? And I've had to say no because they've been out of town. And so this is the exciting part. Um, basically, um, you know, I will have them fill out an intake and send the intake back to me like a questionnaire, a page. Um, but basically, there's going to be a downloaded module, and it's going to start as an audio. Eventually, it may be a video module at some point in the near future. But the great thing about having an audio module, say, for 45 minutes, is people could listen to it in their car. You know, they could listen to it while, you know, people are just so busy, they don't seem to have time to come to an office. But, for example, I will have it on various topics. And if you decide you want this, you know, I will give you the topics you want over, it'll be a three-month program. But I'm also going to have the um, flexibility if people need over-the-phone sessions regarding those types of topics that, yes, they can get an over-the-phone with me. We could do a video or we could do a, a Skype or a Zoom or something like that. And so the program will be based on the needs of the person. If they need, say they need a session with me over the phone, um, you know, we could add every two weeks a session over the phone and while they're still getting those weekly topics maybe on how to make changes, how to make positive changes in their life, you know, how to overcome depression, how to deal with the stress, how to be more positive, have a better spiritual walk with God, you know, all these types of topics, but also how to care for your body in a better way so that you're healthier. And, um, how you know, I'm not an MD, but having said that, I had to fight my way back physically. I was really at a low point, and doctors could not give me answers. I found a lot of things out on my own that I could share with people that they could have a healthier life. So it will be individualized to that person and what their needs are, and it will be over three months. And um, then um, if, if they're happy and they, they want to, they can also renew for another program, but the programs will be limited to a 90-day 90 90 program. And one thing I always tell people in counseling, it takes 30 days to make a change. You can't be impatient with yourself. So by doing a 90-day program, I'm very hopeful that people can make positive changes within that time frame. And you know what, I thank you for the work you're doing with Hope for the Hurting and your counseling. But you said something twice, and I just want to echo that. Sometimes, you know, when we rely on experts, we, if they tell us there's nothing, there's nothing that can be done. If you have an accident, you'll never walk again. If you 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 have to, your life is in is yours. So don't just stop at what an expert says. I can only sit here and wonder how many people gave up after they got a oh, bad. Oh, I agree. Oh, bad I agree. And did they just threw in a towel? Oh, and I'm so glad you brought that up because when I speak to groups, one of the things I emphasize is no matter what, do not give up. I had an injury, and I'm, my, one of my hobbies is ballroom dancing. 
And I do that to the point, and I do competitions to the point that I can afford to do it. It can be a little expensive, but I try to, you know, do a little bit as I can. And I had an injury, um, and I w- we were moving from one home to the other, and I had a fall, and I really messed up my ankle, and it looked absolutely terrible. Two people said to me, oh, you will never dance again. You know, if I believed that, I probably wouldn't be dancing. But I'm happy to tell you six months ago or six months after that fact, I was dancing at a competition. It wasn't my best competition. I will tell you that. But I was able to do it. I set my mind and I put my faith in God and I believed that I could heal. And I, I have used certain techniques to get better that have helped me in the past. And so I did get well. And now to for you. Point, I'm pretty pretty normal but like you say this is no, this is one of the most important messages is to don't stop seeking answers and don't give up and don't necessarily believe what people tell you it's not necessarily true not that we should be skeptical all the time but we should look for other answers and sometimes we have to do the work ourselves to find those answers mm, you, that is so true like I was telling you the other lady who was on off the uh, off the shelf and she said she felt like she was dying she went from doctor to doctor. She was spending loads of money, and she finally said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going to start to see what I can find out." And she found exactly what it was and got back on her feet. Good for her. Good for you. You know, not just Thank when you. somebody tell even if they have a PhD, even if they're a quote unquote expert, and they tell you you're never getting better. You're like, ah, that's that's you saying that. I'm not gonna stop until I get back on my feet again. I, w- I want to ask you this before we got just just under three minutes. What, t- what tip, very, very quickly, could you offer to somebody that when they're going through a challenge, it could be physical, emotional, how, based on what you went through, how do you keep yourself from getting stuck so you don't get stuck there? Well, you know, being stuck, stuck is a frame of mind or it's an attitude and so you just tell yourself you know I'm not going to stay stuck but but be willing to accept small changes this is the biggest thing people want to make big changes I learned from being sick a long time there I make small changes I have a small goal I do something each day to make my life better for my body for my soul and my spirit just one thing each day one thing that's not too much to ask if you can say, I'm, I, I refuse to stay stuck, I'm, you know, and sometimes it takes, like, research from reading or going online or talking to people to get that knowledge of how to move forward. But make up your mind, I'm going to move forward. I'm not going to stay stuck. And you just have to be motivated to get out of that spot and to say there's a better future and I have to find a way and I'm going to have a better future with the help of God and just have that determination to move forward. Mm, and you you have to have it. It's good when you have people around you who encourage you too, but still we have to do that inner work ourselves, even if it feels painful. We have to keep, keep going. Where can off-the-shelf listeners get a copy of your book and the title we've been speaking again with Arthur Linda Plunkett, uh, uh Doctor in Psychology, and our title of our book is Supernatural Rescue from Broken to Beautiful. Where can listeners get a copy of your book, Linda? There are copies available on Amazon, or you can reach me. Um, my email is hopeforhurting at AOL.com. If you want to reach me directly, that's, that's fine to email me. But I know that Barnes & Noble had the book for a while, but since it's been removed from the publisher, I'm not sure. But 
Everyone that I have talked to has been able to get a copy off of Amazon. If you cannot, though, please contact me directly as I do have copies I'm willing to send to you. And uh, last, where can we find you on social media if you're on any social media networks? Where can listeners find you? Well, there is a page called Supernatural Rescue, which um, I recommend probably that would be the best place. Um, but also, if I think you mentioned lindasplunkett.com. There's audios. There's a very powerful dance video at lindasplunkett.com where you can see I gave my testimony um, in dance, in, in ballroom dance. And there's a, um, a type of, uh, yeah, a type of an audio testimony to the music that people find very powerful. So, yeah, um, Hope for Hurting, um, Hope for the Hurting, I'm not using my website. So either lindasplunkett.com or email hopeforhurting at aol.com would be the best places. Oh, we have been delighted and blessed to have Linda Plunkett here with her. She's a doctorate in Christian psychology, and she operates Hope for the Hurting. And she's the author of the book Supernatural Rescue from Broken to Beautiful. You can visit uh, Linda Plunkett online at lindasplunkett.com, L-I-N-D-A-S-P-L-U-N-K-E-T-T.com. And it's Linda S. as in super, Linda S. Plunkett.com. Thank you so much, Linda, for being here Thank with you. us on Off the Shelf this morning. And thank you to our listeners, people tune in to Off the Shelf. We get a lot of people who connect through iTunes and Rainbow Soul, d- dialing in today to the day show. So many ways that people catch uh, Off the Shelf. But thank you to our listeners and especially our loyal listeners. As I always tell you, you are awesome. You're amazing. You are incredible. And Linda is just one example of that. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself today. See you back here at Off the Shelf, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Next Saturday we'll have another fabulous guest on deck for you. Linda, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank Please you, Please go Denise. support Linda Plunkett and her books. Linda, I'll shoot you an email when the show finishes streaming. Bye for now. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.